This is Robert Gallagher from Lima, Peru, and this is the Creative Sheep Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Creative Sheep Podcast, the podcast where we talk to people who are good at what they do to inspire leaders like yourself to get better. My name is Jared Hogue, and I'm going to be your host today, and I'm joined with my good friend, Roman Johnson. Sending greetings from the promised land of Tulsa, Oklahoma today. Are we the promised land? Yeah, that's our that's our uh, tagline. Tulsa, Oklahoma, the promised land. I thought the Just, promised land was Israel. No, no. Well, I mean, that's one of them. There's two. <laughs> We're the second promised land. Gotcha. Beautiful, lush plains. No, we don't have Right that. now it's winter and everything's dead, though. Yeah. Folks, we've got an incredible episode for you today. This is actually episode 24 Ooh. of the Creative Sheep podcast with a wonderful interview with the senior pastor of Camino de Vida in Lima, Peru, Robert Berriger. Another international interview. This is true. This is our second. We had Carrie Newhoff on the podcast uh, for all of our Canadian listeners out there. That's right. Uh, but uh, today we've got a phenomenal interview for you. He's talking all about building a first world church in a third world, world country. It's a great interview, and we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But folks, one one thing I do know is that great leaders want to help other leaders get better. And that's our whole objective here. So if you would, go ahead and jump over to iTunes or Stitcher or really wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit subscribe and leave a review. Leaving that review actually helps us get in front of other leaders like yourself. So if you would jump over there and do that and help spread the wealth, help help get us in front of other people just like yourself. That's right. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by creativesheep.org, your one-stop shop for premium media for the church. Roman, that's going to roll us right into today's shameless plug. Shameless plug. Shame, shameless. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Shame, shameless plug. Folks, Easter is right around the corner. Do you have what you need for this Easter? Wow, this, you're making this sound really heavy. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I don't. You don't. But I know exactly where to get it. That's true. Yeah, I, on creativesheep.org, we have, dare I say, copious amounts of Easter material That's for a great your word. church. I love the word copious. It's a great word uh, to describe what we have, because, I mean, I think you have a short list of some of the, the things we have on the website. Right I there, do, right? I do. We've got some phenomenal illustrations out there, great elements to lead into your, whether it's your altar call or to lead into your message, either one. Uh, or slap it in the middle of worship. Wherever you want to light, land this, it will work, I promise you. We've got a wonderful piece out there called Ultimate Act of Grace. There's another one called He is Here. And then the one we did last year, which is one of my favorites, is called Because He Rose. That's right. And it uh, basically, it's a way to tell the Easter story. Yep. It's uh, it, it just starts off in the scriptures. It tells what happened uh, on Easter and then... Uh, it's got some cool drum elements, and it's, it's pretty sweet. And it basically wraps up the Easter story in that because he rose, what that means for us. Uh, it's, a, it's a really powerful piece. And then, Roman, we've got a brand new illustration coming out this year called Death to Death. That's right, we do. And we can't, uh, we can't leak out any of the details just yet, but it will be. It will be. Great. Worth your while. Absolutely. You want to, want to check that out over at creativesheep.org. Plus, we've got a couple of interactive openers uh, for your service to get your audience a buzz. Uh, before you even set foot on the stage, we've got a Steve the Screen Easter edition as well as an Easter interactive opener. Uh, just a great way to create some buzz out in your audience before you hit the stage. And Roman, that is today's shameless plug. Shame, shameless plug. Roman, we've got an incredible interview today for our audience. It is with Robert Berriger, the senior pastor of Camino de Vida in Lima, Peru. And man, this guy's story is phenomenal. He has been in ministry for over 30 years, 
and just kind of tells us his story and along the way some principles and things he picked up uh, to put in his tool belt and just some really great tips for for especially for some young guys in ministry and some great reminders for the rest of us that are in ministry also. Um, so just being able to stick to it, your faithfulness um, and and letting God do what He does, keeping family first. Man, Robert gets into some really amazing things. Uh, so really, without further ado, and giving all this away, let's get to today's interview with Robert Berger. Pastor Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's let's give some of our listeners out here maybe some backstory. Um, first and foremost, uh, you're, you're now a pastor in Lima, Peru, uh, of the church Camino de Vida. But uh, there's there's obviously a, a much longer story that goes into this. So let's rewind a bit. Let's start with uh, first off, where where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Minnesota. It's a little town in what's called the Iron Range of Minnesota, way up north, about 30 minutes from Canada, up in that little Arrowhead area, a little tiny town called Cook, Minnesota. I don't have many memories of Cook. Uh, I was born with a birth defect. I had a, a defective heart. So I didn't have much prognostics to live back in those days. Uh, in fact, I was, I believe, the 10th uh, recipient in the world to have open-heart surgery and the fourth to survive it. That was done in the University of Minnesota. Wow. But right after that surgery, we moved. My my mother did. My father left my house when I was a child. I, I actually never met my father. He left when I was about six months old. So my mother moved to Los Angeles, hoping for a better life. So from about five years old on, I was raised in the Hollywood area and the Santa Monica area of California. Wow. So uh, along the path here, uh, I guess let's let's fast forward to the point of where you uh, where you met Jesus. What at what point did you did you make the decision that I'm living for the Jesus living for Jesus the rest of my life? Yeah, I'll give a little bit of the longer story of that. Uh, people know this today that children that grow up without fathers, uh, fathers provide three things for the children. Fathers provide security, identity, and provision. So basically, kids that grow up without a dad or an absentee dad or an alcoholic dad or a workaholic dad or even an abusive father tend to grow up insecure and lack identity. Uh, the reason there are so many gangs and subcultures on the streets today is when a young child does not receive identity in the home, they will receive it somewhere else. So at a young age, I began surfing, uh, became part of a group that later became fairly well known called the Zephyr Surf Group. They actually did a little movie on it called The Lords of Dogtown, and that's where I went to high school in Santa Monica and what was known to the neighborhood kids as Dogtown. And I surfed for a shaper. His name was Jeff Hogue, who later became the the guy that started Zephyr Surf Team and later a skateboard team that became pretty well known. So, But that's my life. I was raised on the beach. I left 
home pretty much uh, at a very young age. I lived in a garage on the beach in Santa Monica, still going to school. My mother just really didn't care, but uh, would uh, surf every day and just live the surf life. In that time, there was a small church. The church was called Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach, California. I think they read the book The Cross and the Switchblade by Nikki Cruz or something. That I jokingly say it was, you know, 50 old ladies in this church that just read this <laughs> book and wanted to go win our little tribe of surfers to the Lord. So it was interesting because when kids come by and try to give you a tractor, try to witness you, we would chase them off. But what are you doing? It's a grandma. Uh, when grandma started coming, in the end, um, one of my friends, who happened to be one of the top surfers in Southern California, his name was Rick. Uh, his nickname was the Foam Rider. But Rick, uh, they got him to the church. He gave his heart to Jesus. And Rick convinced us that if we would go to church, we would enjoy it. He said there would be a concert on Friday night. And I thought, my God, a concert of what? Is this going to be Grandma playing organ or... <laughs> Um, I wanted something like Led Zeppelin or something, but <laughs> I went to the church for the concert more out of curiosity and uh, ended up giving my life to the Lord that evening. There was just a few youth in the church, uh, but that church went through, it was during the Jesus movement, it just went through a revival. We went from about 50 to 800, mostly surfers the first year. Wow. So that was... That was the beginning when I gave my heart to the Lord, 1972. Wow. So in 1972, how old were you at the time when this happened? 18. 18. Awesome. So was was your conversion, was it like um, uh, you gave your heart to Jesus and now uh, you, you want to spend the rest of your life uh, preaching the gospel? Or was it more just this was the decision that the, you made and you wanted to just go back to the beach? No, I think it was like a lost child. We used to joke around at the Zephyr skateboard team and surf team that this was never, never land what we lived in, the, the Dogtown area of Santa Monica. And we were Peter Pan, except for we didn't follow Peter Pan, we followed Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a bunch of lost boys living on this beach. And when I gave my heart to Jesus, it was such a radical change in my life. It was one of those instant conversions. Um, I remember a little grandmother in the church, and I love grandmas in church because of it. She kind of adopted some of us kids that were coming off the beach, the surfers, and we would literally surf Sunday morning, pull the, you know, out of the water with our trunk still wet, line our surfboards up in the back of church because it's only a few blocks away. Uh, when we sat in the pews, leave wet marks from our swim trunks on the pew. <laughs> and they loved us just the way we were. We kept bringing more kids in uh, every Sunday. Well, a little lady in church, one of the grandmas, started giving me some missionary books. And finally, one day, this little grandma said, you know, Robert, the hardest thing you could do for God is be a missionary. And that was my call. It was grandma. Little grandma in church challenged my manhood. So I went to the pastor. His name was Ralph Moore. 
And I said to Pastor Ralph, I said, I think I want to be a missionary. What do I do? And he was funny. He just said, well, go study. And I said, where? And he goes, I don't care. Find the place. <laughs> um, I later asked him why he said that, and it was because of the denomination he was in. He didn't want me to go to that denomination. He thought I would be better served finding uh, something a little bit more in the Jesus movement, I guess you could say, back in those days. So we found the Bible school in San Diego. I packed everything in my surfer van and moved down. I was only stayed about six months when I enrolled in Bible college. And uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. That's fantastic. Do you do you by chance remember the grandma's name that you said challenged your manhood? No, <laughs> I absolutely don't. Um, there was another one in Bible school, and I do remember her name. Her name was Thelma Fitzpatrick. She was a little fiery Pentecostal lady from Kentucky. I mean, if you picture a grandma in Kentucky with a shotgun and you know protecting a still or something, that's what Thelma was like. Um, but she had a fire in her heart for mission. Her dream as a child was to go to the mission field, but she married a, a guy that got involved in the corporate world, and because of that, she never realized her dream. But she was responsible for putting fire in the hearts of hundreds of kids that went to the mission field. Wow. So she would just pray for us and weep and give us books and tell us stories and cry with us. And uh, The fire in her heart was transferred to ours, and we went to the mission field. How cool. How cool. Uh, so in yeah. all of this, were were your parents supportive? I mean, I mean, I know you said your dad was, was gone when you were six months old, uh, but was your mom supportive when you said, Mom, I, I want to go be a missionary. I'm moving to San Diego to go to Bible school. Yeah, she was pretty shocked. Like I said, during my dark days when I was in the, the surf group, um, my only heart desire back in those days was to be a competitive surfer and probably die and riding a big wave somewhere. Um, kind of a lost kid in the whole scene. So I really, I, I went home from the garage maybe once or twice a month and, you know, she she was a nurse. She didn't have much. She worked hard, and she knew every now and then I'd come home and would leave a little bit of cash out on the counter for me and some food someplace. But by the time I got saved and went back home, she had had another breakdown, and it was rough to come home and see her in a condition where literally she was overdosed on the floor when I walked home that day. And, I had to call the ambulance and then went through the guilt that I probably caused this. The beautiful thing in that is, you know, that if you give your heart to the Lord, your family also will be saved. Well, wasn't a few months after that she gave her heart to the Lord, started coming to church. And she was thrilled that my life had turned around. And if it was the mission field or whatever, that she would have a minister son was beyond her dreams. So she, yeah, she was very supportive of it. That's awesome. And, uh, it's the it's beautiful thing is fast forward because in 90, 1992, I started an orphanage and she came down and worked in that orphanage for about 15 years as pretty much everybody's grandma. 
and boy, those kids loved her. Man, that's awesome. Very, very cool. Uh, so, so you you move you move and go to Bible school. You realize you want to be a missionary. At what point, going from Minnesota over to to California, living in San Diego, was it that Peru was laid on your heart? Well, the beginning days, it was very naive. Um, I really, I didn't know what missions was, cross cultural, what what really it even meant. I could say, I guess. Um, so whenever any missionary came through our Bible school or through our church, I was up in the front row and in the altar at the end saying, here am I, send me. And then there was a wise old missionary from Brazil, because back in those days, I thought I might go to the Philippines. I was looking at uh, Papua New Guinea, because I'd read missionary books in the headhunting tribes there. And, um read the books of Wycliffe in South America, and I was at the altar for every single one. But that missionary from Brazil one day looked at me and he says, Robert, just remember, it took Abraham 25 years to see the promise after he was promised what he was promised. And that was a a God moment because it let me know that this is a long preparation. It's not going to be a short preparation. Um, so, uh, Peru came about, a uh, missionary from Peru came, this was probably about 1977, and he extended an invitation that if youth were interested to come down as a youth missions trip for a summer. So we signed up for it, came to Peru in 1978 with my wife, we were pretty much just married. Uh, so. When we came to Peru in 1978, um, just fell in love with this country. It was a military government back then, and a little unusual to see the police with machine guns and the just the poverty that we saw. But on the other side, the faces of the people just broke our hearts. The lines on their faces, the hard lives they lived, the worries uh, that we saw. Uh, specifically, we were in a small village in the Andes Mountains, and I had seen and talked to a pastor that was risking his life. He had uh, they tried to kill him a few times because he was a Christian and getting people converted, and they didn't want that. They were still worshiping 22 Inca gods and sun, moon, rain, thunder, corn, offering sacrifices to these gods, which was occasionally human. So when he came in with the gospel, the local religious leaders didn't want him. They tried to kill him. And all I could think in coming out of Bible school is they're trying to stone you, they're trying to kill you. This is like the Apostle Paul. But that little pastor looked at me up in the mountains, and he says, Robert, thank you for coming. And I said, man, thank you for having us. It's an honor. You're a man of God. And he goes, no, you don't get it. Thank you for coming. We had a little argument because I'm saying, no, thank you for having us. And he said, no, thank you for coming. And finally, he just grabbed me and he says, you don't get it. He said, whenever people come to the mission fields, they always go to the big cities. They go to Lima or Cusco. Nobody ever comes here. We're the forgotten pastors. And pretty much I just realized what he meant. It, 
didn't matter if we went to preach or teach, which is what we thought was important. What matters is we were just there. Uh, the fact that we went so far, I later realized people in the city would ask questions. Who is this man that people come so far to visit? Um, it helped raise his stature of presence, but it encouraged him that God would send somebody to his little village that hadn't had lights or running water or just living in the Stone Age. And um, so we got on our face then and said, God, if you send us back to Peru, we will always remember the forgotten pastors. And that's been a promise that we've kept ever since we've been here. Wow. So was was that your first time ever going to Peru on this trip? That was. Wow. It was the first time we'd ever been. Uh, that was 1978. It took our church five years to send us uh, because they didn't know if it was real. A uh, series of tests that I now realize were God tests. Um, you know, the pastor came to me and said, number one, uh, you're in debt. You got to pay off your credit cards. And I'm thinking, well, I thought the church might help me with that. But he says, no, pay off your credit cards. Come back when you're done. Came back a year later. I said, all my credit cards are paid off. His next thing he said to me was, if you haven't won anybody here, what makes you think you'll win somebody there? So he put me in charge of evangelism in his church to see if I could win people. The end of the next year, I came back and I said, well, here's a bunch of families that are now planted in the church. Uh, he came back to me and he said, well, I don't know you very well. Uh, I need to bring you on staff. And back in these days, this was a small church of about three or 400 people on staff and janitor, painting walls, cleaning bathrooms. So I went on staff at the end of the third year. He said, you become valuable to me. I might send you next year. Uh, at the end of the next year, he says, I'm not ready to send you yet. And by the way, you're fired because your heart isn't here. But I still need you to teach for me on the weekends and help me in the church. Just go get a job. Um, and I almost left a few times during that process. Today, it was after five years he sent us. And I thank God because I realized uh, it's that voice of King David when Joab sent, was sent to battle Absalom, and Absalom died in it. Uh, Joab, the captain of David's army, said to a young man, did you see anything? And the young man said, yes. And he said, run, tell David. But he, another young man said, I can run way faster than him. And Joab said, did you see anything? And he said, no, but I can run. And finally, the young man was still persistent. He said, if you want to run, run. And sure enough, he beat the young man running to David. And David, with hope in his eyes, saw that young man coming and said, what news do you have? And he said, nothing, I just ran. Uh, and then finally, the young guy with the message came a little slower, but he had a message. I realized, you know, sometimes we can get a little impatient and run without a message. Um, it's so important to wait and go through the process of training. Because when I came to Peru, we came with a message. We came with a heart that had been tried and worked over and still had the fire to want to come. So going through those five five tests that you just described, what, what was it like while you were in that? Was, was it frustrating? Was it 
I guess, how did it feel just going through those different things when your your what you felt was your passion just to, to go to Peru? It was hard. Um, it was just hard. I think a lot of people would get frustrated uh, during that time because uh, it wasn't easy working for the pastor of that church. He was it was a small church, kind of an old school church. And not not anything like the church I was saved in, where we saw the youth revival. This was kind of one of these deep word churches with a Bible school and uh, phenomenal teaching, phenomenal depth in the word. Not a lot of people saved. Um, and during that time, it was you know there was one point that I went to another pastor in the city and I said he'll never send us. Can I come to your church? That pastor wisely said, yeah, we'd love to have you, but talk to your pastor first. And uh, we realized that we just needed to wait it out. Um, it was interesting because the last year I actually got a really good job. I was working for a Fortune 500 company. And at the end of the year, I was making more money than I'd ever made had a, over 150 employees, employees working under me in a company car and a great salary. And that's when my pastor came back to me and he says, are you ready to go? And I was actually like, gosh, I don't know. I've got this really good job now. My wife's happy. We can buy stuff. <laughs> and he just said, well, pray about it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, seek wisdom rather than gold. So I had to go to my boss that had been training me for a year for this executive position. And I just said, you know what? I've been waiting five years to go. I've got to go now. So that was the last, probably one of the hardest tests, the prosperity test, because I could have, he just looked at me and he says, do you, he says, you're crazy. Do you have any idea how much money you're going to make next year? I said, yeah. So when we came to proof five years after the first time we were here, 1983, August the 4th, landed in Peru with seven suitcases, two babies, and about a tenth of what we would have made in, in monthly support from this little church. Wow. Wow. Um, man. So in, in all of this, did you go then to Peru thinking, I'm going to be a senior pastor here? No. <laughs> No, um, no, we never thought we would be a pastor. We we now call it, you know, there's corners in your life. God gets you one place and you don't see the next road until you get to a corner. When you get to the corner, God reveals his plan. And uh, our first goal is to get to Peru. We actually thought we would be working in a in the jungle in a tribe. We never dreamed we would be in a city less ever dreamed we'd ever pastor a church. Um, and that was my heart, the forgotten pastors. Go to the guys and just help them and encourage them and be there with them and maybe teach a little bit and uh, be a bridge to help find pastors that can help pastors with me. And So my first five years in Peru, that's what we did. I traveled in and out of the jungles uh, probably too much. Because in the first five years, I honestly don't remember my kids. I'd be three weeks in the jungle, a week in Lima, two weeks up in the Andes Mountains. 
another week and a half in Lima and then back up the coast and then back in Lima. It was um, it was definitely a philosophy that was heading towards a shipwreck in my family. Um, but during that time, the process of training these pastors, we planted in that first five years about 80 churches in the mountains and jungles, taking Bible school students and taking them to a city and helping them get a church going. Um, but terrorism came into food. We had a violent terrorist group in the 80s called the Shining Path. And because of terrorist activities, it limited where I could travel. Uh, by the late 80s and early 90s, several of the pastors we put into place were had been killed, martyred by the terrorists. Um, and during that time, the church and the mission I was working in I began to, God began to open my eyes. We were in a church. It was a beautiful church, but very old school. Uh, old school in the sense of women that wore pants couldn't come to church or they were going to hell. Or if you didn't have a tie on at the door, you couldn't come in and get saved. You had to dress right before you can come to church. And I just thought, you know, that youth revival I was a part of in Santa Monica wasn't like this. These kids have no hope. Their country's in terrorism. It's in violence. If they can't leave the country, they go to drugs or the dark side of, of politics. And the Holy Spirit began to say, it'll work here, reach the youth. So in the beginning, I started going to churches saying, I was a part of the youth movement called the Jesus People. Let me help you. We can do this here. We can reach kids. And the churches kept telling me, it won't work here. Uh, no, that only works there. We don't do that. We don't use electric guitars. We don't use that kind of music in this church. And uh, Finally, one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and just said, Sean. So we started a church basically to show other churches that you can win youth this way. We can, we can get them. Uh, the fact that our church grew to what it is today shocked us. Um, the fact that our church grew at all it was a surprise because we started it just as a youth movement and God began to add youth to us fairly quickly, pretty quickly. I mean, with by the end of the year, we had a radio program on one of the number one rock and roll stations in Lima, seven hours a day of free airtime. And we were putting Christian rock on. Uh, people would call in saying, I've never heard music like this. And we would tell them it's because it's Christian. Um, and it was hard rock. I mean, hard rock. We were playing Amy Grant. <laughs> um, just, I'm saying that jokingly because, of course, the churches, when we started bringing Christian rock music in, were not happy with us. Um, and they kind of separated us, excluded us, started name calling uh, toward us. But that happened for a few years until the pastor's kids in the city started coming to our church. And then the pastors came back to us and started sending their kids to our church, and then they started asking me for help. So uh, that that has turned around. We've been here for 33 years. For seven years, I've been the head of the evangelical church in Peru. So that, that's an honor because they no longer receive me as an American. To them, I'm, I'm a Peruvian pastor. Wow. Man, that's incredible. Uh, 
so so in all of this, what what year was Camino de Vida born? We actually have three dates, and I laugh at it. The official date, which we just celebrated our 27th official anniversary, was January 15th, 1989. We started officially. Um, what it was, I had a group of kids that I'd been meeting with for three years before that. Uh, and while I was still in the other mission, I had this group of kids that were getting saved out of high schools. It's actually a really funny story. Um, there was a local underground punk rock group. Uh, they had a little cultish local following. The, the rock group's name was called Vomit. So one day, the mother of the lead singer of Vomit comes to me and says, you've got to help my son. So I went over to their house. I talked to the lead singer of this little punk rock group called Vomit. It was a this university kid who was very philosophical. And I just said to him, why don't you be part of an answer instead of the problem? And he goes, what's the answer? The end of the, the day, the lead singer of Vomit got saved. The end of the week, I had all of Vomit in my living room. So our church really started in about 1986 with vomit. That's incredible. So you, yeah. So in some regards, you're you're going that was on the unofficial start, but it was just a small group of kids. That's incredible. So to some degree, you're going on 30 years here, in in some regards, and then you've also got the 27 year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Which either way, congratulations on staying in ministry that long. Um, I, I'm sure you've all we've all heard the stats before, but typically speaking, eight out of ten that go into ministry don't end in ministry. Um, and so, thank you for yeah, paving the path right. for the rest of us. Yeah, well, we believe long-term missions is long-term results. Uh, I say this for a lot of people: when it's all said and done, more is said than done. We want more done than said. Uh, we want to dig deep into one field. Uh, someday they'll bury us in this country. We're not leaving. My kids grew up here. They married Peruvians, work on staff with me. Right now I have five beautiful Peruvian grandchildren. And uh, we have the privilege of having two cultures in us, the United States culture, which we're love and are thankful for. And the Latin culture, which has become our adoptive home, and they've adopted us into this family. That's incredible. Now, one of the things I love about your church, and I, I've heard you speak on this before, and then this is also, of course, on your website, uh, you said you wanted to, to build a first world church in a third world country. Would you mind expounding on that a little bit more? Sure. Um uh, it actually goes into just mission experience. Uh, people, and I was probably guilty of this my first few years on the mission field. Uh, when you see somebody living in deep poverty, we tend to talk down to them like I know more than they do, or uh, they're, they're just kind of ignorant. Um, but I started noticing a pattern that whenever I came back to the States, Latin people, and specifically Peruvians, um, when they were in this space, they didn't have to be spoken down to. Uh, they actually grew up 
they grew up into um, into whatever the culture and the space was. So I just began to think, you know, I want to build a church that is as good as any church in the United States because these people deserve it. So that's where the term came out. We want to build a first world church in the third world country. We wanted to give them an experience that they would get anywhere in the world. It's not an easy thing because it's a country that lives in deep poverty. Uh, yet we can give them quality worship. We can give them top quality teachings. Uh, uh, we can just give them, let them know that we're part of a world community. So, yeah, it, we today believe that, and I'll, I'll put our church, the creative team and the leadership in our church is phenomenal because we just expected out of the people what people expect to mature in Christ and to grow. And uh, and I also found out something. If, if people come to a church that's just a little bit nicer, we put a little extra in the high tech, you know, it's 90% cheap, 10% wow. <laughs> and that little 10% wow wows a couple of the youth in the church to the point where they go home and clean up their neighborhood, clean up their own house, that little shack they live in, maybe paint it. Well, then we've helped them raise their standard, not only because of church, but now it's in their home. And if enough homes in a in a neighborhood are changed, then we can change the neighborhood. One thing I noticed just kind of digging around on your website is you guys have a lot going on uh, with with a with a, a lumped under the title Life Missions. Uh, I noticed you oversee a children's home, uh, Grace House. You build water wells. Of course, you've got the wheelchair projects. You're building homes for people. Uh, you're building churches in the community. You've got disaster relief, plus you're doing the Servolution. You guys have a little bit going on. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Uh, we're not lazy. We <laughs> we absolutely love serving the city. Um, the children's home began as a need from terrorism. So many parents were being killed that we took care of the kids that were victims of terrorism. Uh, the Grace House for girls is girls that have been trafficked or abused sexually and are suicidal. We give them hope and life again. Um, and that home is phenomenal, the miracles we see there. Same with the children's home. It's run for 27 years or 23 years, and we have had the joy of watching kids grow up as from babies through college in that home, and they're just as much our kids now as anything. Um, the wheelchairs, uh, we have the honor to give away almost 60,000 free wheelchairs. Wow. Uh, in the nation, um, we dig wells for villages that don't have water. And a lot of that, if you look at missionaries like William Carey, William Carey, one of the forerunners of modern missions, he went to India and for 20 years he taught them farming. Before he got one convert, he taught them how to build tree farms and, and use the lumber from that for business. And one day the people came to him and said, why are you helping us? And he said, well, I'm a Christian. What's that? So he earned the right to be heard. 
And a lot of the outreach we do is just to give us the right to bring the gospel. So we're not coming preaching at them, we're coming serving. And through our service, it opens the hearts of the people. It's incredible. And with what I was blown away by was the, the um, uh, relatively speaking, how inexpensive it is to help with some of this. Like each wheelchair to build is like 25 bucks or something like that, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not very much money. It's still, like we say, it's a third world nation. There's a lot of poverty. Um, and a little can go a long way when you live in a nation like this. Yeah. Um, a little can go a long way for not very much money. We can give a wheelchair to somebody who has been crawling in the dirt or being rolled around in a wheelbarrow. We can give them the dignity of what we call sitting in the hands of Jesus. Or we can give them clean water and help them understand why their kids have worms in their poo. Or, um, you know, when, when people have parasites, the worms eat first. So the kids are chronic malnutrition, and this has all kinds of health effects, tends to grow. So we're able to go in and make a village healthier, just do a simple thing like a water well with a filter. Man. It, 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 the things that here in the U.S. seem so, I mean, we go to the kitchen sink and flip a switch, and we've got running water as long as we want. Um, it's just incredible. I, and I know building a you can build someone a house for $1,500. Building a church is $5,000. I mean, this is... This, I mean, not to minimize it, but this is so doable for anyone out there listening that wants to get involved. Um, and we'll we'll get to the contact information of how to do that here in just a little bit. Uh, but Pastor Robert, you've been in ministry now for quite a long time. Looking back over your career, um, and you even alluded to this just a little bit ago in terms of when you first got to Peru um, and how your your family was kind of starting to suffer a little bit. What would you say, looking back, if, if you could talk to yourself when you were 30 or maybe 35 years old, knowing what you know now, what's maybe one or two things, uh, pieces of advice that you would give yourself knowing what you know now? Uh, probably the stay the course, it's worth it. Stay the course, don't get discouraged in the hard times, it's worth it. Um, I, and it is, uh, I have no regrets for the life that we've chosen. No regrets having raised my kids in a third world nation. I have no regrets, uh, you know, to having left our culture and the land of our birth to give our life for the gospel in another nation. Um, I would just tell myself it's worth it. Wow. That's very, very cool. Uh, one, just this one's kind of a side note here, and then I want to get to if folks want to get in touch with you or be able to contact and help out with life missions, how they're going to do that. But I, I, I'm just real curious. Uh, you've been in ministry for a long time now. Who who are some people that you look at and you say, you know what, this person inspires me. I, I, I aspire to be <laughs> like this. Who, who are those types of people for you? Uh, through the years, God has allowed me to have different pastors as mentors. Um, my pastor in San Diego, the one that put me through those five years of testings, became a 
the father I never had. His name is George Evans. Uh, just an amazing, amazing man of God. I um, had a deep relationship. He passed away a number of years ago. Uh, the mentors in my life have been guys like Willie George. Uh, and Willie didn't even know he was mentoring me. He used to have a Ministry of Excellence conference, and a friend of mine knew about the conference, invited me to go. And I went every year for nine years straight and devoured his material. But I never met him. I just would sit in the back of the conference up in a corner and take notes and then buy all the VHS tapes and uh, all his cassette tapes and go home and devour them because he was so practical. Um, other men that influenced my life today, John Maxwell is my pastor and a mentor to help us just reach a little bit higher. Uh, he is, we've ministered in government. Um, I've got to minister everywhere from the president and three different sitting presidents to Congress. Um, and then just needed somebody to coach me on some of those steps to take when you go into that realm of, of leadership. Another mentor and close friend has been Brian Houston from Hillsong. Uh, we love Pastor Brian, love Hillsong, love uh, the freshness of what Christianity is in their world and have tried to reproduce a little bit of that. So what kind of a cross, I guess, between Church on the Move, Willie George today, and Brian Houston with a little bit of leadership from John Maxwell? Very, very cool. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And Pastor Robert, if folks want to get in touch with you, um, whether to to help out with life missions or maybe just to connect, what's the best way to go about doing that? Probably the easiest way is lifemissions.com. Just lifemissions.com. They can reach us through there. uh, And we appreciate Anybody that wants to join up with us, help along the way. Um, I, I don't know if there's another way to really reach us. We speak Spanish, CaminaDeVida.com. That's the name of our church, and they can listen to some of our teachings and check to our church. But Life Missions has the same thing in English just about. Fantastic. Well, again, Pastor Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Very grateful you took the time to share with us. Uh, It was an honor, sir. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you for the time. Folks, thank you so much for listening today. Uh, Man, without you, we don't get to do what we do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you don't mind sharing the podcast on social media, uh, feel free to tag us in it. Roman, I believe we're on social media. That's right, we are. Jared, the days are gone when, uh, you know, you're communicating with letters communicating with Pony Express, phone calls even. Uh, this day and age, we're all about the, the the social media, okay? And we're on there as creative underscore sheep. Very easy. Make sure you don't forget the underscore, because if you do, you might be talking to somebody in, like, Iceland or something. It's something like that. Yeah, so. But folks, thanks for listening. If you would, share this podcast. Share it on social media. Leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to your podcast. And folks, jump on over to creativesheep.org. We've got these show notes over there where you can see all the links to the things that we talked about. And with that, I want to give a shout out to our producer, Janet. 
Thanks, Janet. You're the best. The queen of the airwaves. She makes our show notes possible. And make sure this is ready for you the first and third Monday of the month. I like that she's the queen of the airwaves because I don't even know. if Does, does our podcast go on airwaves? Sure. I guess. Well, the internet, does that count as an airwave? Well, you're hearing it through the airwaves. But... Okay, well, hey, I'll I'll trust you on this one. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. We will see you on the next episode. Farewell, my friends. 